Our whirlwind courtship finally comes to its stunning conclusion, today. I met Samuel when I was 14 and knew in my heart of hearts, he is the one. As a young woman now, I cherish these memories of a first and only love. I remember the first day I saw him, sitting in our family's garden, accompanying his brother as he asked for my sister's hand in marriage. The swell in my heart that my dear sister is getting to wed the love of her life. The celebration that followed the joyous announcement, Edward and Anne, together forever. As gleeful children, Anne and I played husband and wife, dreaming of the day it would be a reality. Through the engagement, I saw more and more of the handsome Samuel. He was at every party, brunch and dinner, stealing sideways glances in my direction. I knew I captured his attention. However, I needed to find a way to capture his heart. In the midst of these brief encounters, I collected as much detail as I could. In today's time, a lady must act like a lady, proper, smart, and sophisticated. There was a ball one evening at the infamous Ward Mansion. Anticipation was in the air. A month prior, Samuel had written to me asking if my family planned to attend. The correspondence seemed silly due to the fact that Anne and Edward were already making arrangements for the ball. I wrote Samuel back, the first of many letters, that we indeed planned to attend the ball. The simple letter changed my heart forever. It solidified that not only was Samuel thinking of me, but he was also playing coy in his interest, the telltale sign of a budding romance. I decided I would look glamorous for the ball and give him such a surprise. There is no way he would not be smitten with me. It took detailed planning. However, Edward let it slip that Samuel adores the piano. I studied piano and played quite often. I had the perfect ballad, a handcrafted one titled, Always. The beauty of piano is there's no words. I don't have to think of a witty chorus to sing or steal words from plays. I could delicately finger the piano, a flowing melody that would always live in his heart. As I knew it would, after my performance, Samuel asked me to dance with him. We flowed graciously with one another around the ballroom floor, my stomach in butterflies as he twirled me around, staking his claim. He asked, Where did you learn such a melody? I have never heard such music before. With a sheepish grin, I looked up into his eyes and told him, I have a muse with whom elicits such emotions in my heart. The melody came naturally. A lucky man, if I do say so. I, for one, will love it, always. And with that, he twirled me away and then back into his strong arms. Night after night, we were inseparable. Every holiday, ball, party, tea, and event, we were by each other's sides. While Samuel was away at school, I missed him dreadfully. The only solace was the letter I would receive at the end of each week. One week, a surprise was folded gently into my letter. A dried, pressed rose. The rose looked perfectly preserved, almost as thin as paper. Dear Elizabeth, I took a stroll in our campus garden this morning, thinking fondly of you. The sun shone through the clouds, capturing light, guiding me to a secluded resting spot. I found myself sitting, lost in a sea of roses, each one more beautiful than before. My heart ached for the amount I missed you. How much I wished to see your face and hold your hands in mine. The ache turned to a swelling as I imagined our life together, and how just as these roses, you are blossoming into a beautiful woman and will soon be a beautiful bride. I pluck this rose to remind you that I will always care for you, tend to you, and provide a life equal to this rose garden to watch you become a rare, exotic flower. Always, Samuel. The next time I saw Samuel, there was a grand celebration. He officially became a doctor, just like his brother. During the celebration, Samuel asked for everyone's attention. He had a very important announcement. With the support of my family and the approval of Miss Croom, 
I ask for the hand of Elizabeth Jane Croom to be my beloved wife forever and always. As Samuel walked over to me, my melody always began to play, highlighted by a symphony, taking what I had given him and magnifying it, just as he was doing with our love, forever bonding myself and Samuel together. That story brings us here. It's our wedding day. Samuel knew our love was strong. He specially crafted an estate for us in Florida. Through the last year of our courtship, he designed a home we will live in until we die. Every detail centered around what he believed would keep me happy. My most favorite of these being the replicated rose garden, hidden in the middle of a statue of me, holding a single rose to my face, dressed in a gown, hair flowing. When asked Samuel for the inspiration behind the statue, he noted that this is how he envisioned me while he was away, wild and beautiful, one with nature. The rose garden is where we decided we would wed. Our love blossomed as the roses did, blooms of red, pink, and white. I placed red and pink roses in my hair as Samuel pinned a single white rose to his suit. My stomach has the wings of butterflies, fluttering at the thought of walking down the aisle to my beloved. A string quartet begins to play a fond melody. I walk to Samuel, our family and other prominent families seated before us. The vows are long and sweet, showcasing the eternal love we have for one another. Instead of traditional I do, Samuel and I look at one another and say in unison, to love each other, always. We kiss. There is an eruption of cheers, happy cheers that echo through the air and continue into the celebration of the reception. Our quartet moved into the mansion as the guests made their way inside as well. Upon entry, we found tables loaded with foods, exquisite cheese and wines, a feet fit for 10 kings, all to celebrate our love. Samuel kissed me again. Starving from the excitement of the day, we rushed to the tables of food, filling ourselves to the brim. The band played for hours. I steal a glance at the windows and see a soft pink sunset the last light glowing as the sun tucks itself away until morning. I stand and cherish such beauty on our wedding day. As I stand in front of the window, admiring the soft glow, a wave of tiredness overcomes me. The heat from earlier, the food and wine, all catching up, taking its toll. There seems to be no shortage of energy from the rest of the party, so I make my way to Samuel. He pushes a section of hair from my face. Hello, my wife. How are you doing? I'm quite faint. I believe I'm going to have a short rest upstairs and return when I'm feeling ready again. Samuel grabs my hand and brings it to his mouth, pressing his lips against it. Would you like for me to accompany you? I tell him to please continue with the party. Everyone is so excited. I shouldn't be gone long, just a minute or two to shut my eyes, collect myself, and gain some energy. I leave the party, climbing the stairs, and find our new bedroom. I sit in a chair by the fireplace, a soft fire glowing around the hem of my dress. I look upon the room, elegant furniture, delicately crafted in a soothing white, our bed looking more than welcoming. While sitting in the chair, Sleep overcomes me, pulling my eyelids down in its wake. I let it take me and drift into a peaceful sleep. I'm dreaming of our wedding, replaying most of how our ceremony went. As Samuel and I are leaning in for a kiss, I begin to feel heat. The rose garden is in flames around us. I look to Samuel, who is now turned into a person made of fire, embracing me suffocating me in his flames. I scream, waking myself up. Opening my eyes, I see there is no rose garden or Samuel in flames, but myself, my dress, my hair, all burning, melting skin and fabric together. I run out of the room, continuing to scream, 
down the hall to the stairs. As I make it to the stair ledge, I see people huddled at the bottom, looking up at me in horror. I run down the stairs, falling in the process. I'm a ball of fire, tumbling, burning everything in my way. As I fall off the last step onto the hard marble floor of the ground, I am plummeled as man after man tries to throw himself onto me to extinguish the remaining fire. I lay on the ground, broken, bloody, and burned, too weak to move. My eyes dart frantically around. Samuel? My voice is hoarse, barely audible. He picks me up and carries me to our bedroom, gingerly placing me on our bed. The movement is excruciating. The remainder of my dress melted into my skin. No way to feel comfortable. Samuel cannot even hold my hands. I look at him, tears welling in my eyes, knowing I only have mere minutes left. I turn to face him. He's looking at me, a frown painting his face. My darling, I'll love you. Always. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sisterstitious, and it's about to get spooky. The tale you just heard is the most common legend that has been told and passed down from locals for over a century. And while there are many different versions of that story, historical documents have proved that while the legend holds facts about the Bellamy family, most of the story isn't what actually happened. This episode is dedicated to Lisa Daniel, my late mother-in-law. She was born and raised in the vicinity of Jackson County, Florida, and grew up hearing the story of Bellamy's burning bride. She purchased The Ghost of Bellamy Bridge by Dale Cox years before meeting me, prior to her untimely death. Only given the chance to meet her a month before her life was cut short, I've often found myself mourning the memories we'll never share. While she had no idea that years later I would obtain the same text from her sister, I cherish her simple decision to purchase Cox's book as it would inevitably interweave with my life, a bond that is uniquely ours, a memory I could finally keep. Now, are you ready to hear the true story of Bellamy's ghost? I thought so. And since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we are going to begin. Samuel Bellamy and Elizabeth Jane Croom were both born into distinguished North Carolina families. Major General William Croom, Elizabeth's father, was a war hero, a political figure, and the owner of numerous plantations in the area. However, when their main crop cotton began to fail owing to abuse of the land, he set his eyes on Florida, where planners were reporting record crop growth. He bought a variety of holdings in Gaston County and Northwest Florida, which bordered Jackson County, and sent his son and some of his slaves to start planting with the intention of returning. But he died unexpectedly only a year later. Elizabeth was 10 years old when her father died, leaving her a sizable estate. As the youngest of the Croom children, she would see several of her siblings start their own families, and it wouldn't be long before she did as well. Both of Major Croom's sons, Brian and Hardy, would travel to Florida after his death to purchase more acreage. They named one parcel in Jackson County, which was over 400 acres, River Plantation. Alexander Bellamy, Samuel's oldest brother, traveled to Florida at the same time, and records show that by 1829 he was residing there with his wife and 15 slaves. Elizabeth's older sister, Anne Croom, married Edward Bellamy the same year their father died, so Elizabeth would be well acquainted with the Bellamys over the following years. As she grew older, she developed a crush on Edward's younger brother, Samuel, who was eight years her senior. Hardy Croom, who after his father's death owned a big quantity of land in Florida, 
wielded a great deal of power over the families, and his persuasion would be the primary reason they would all eventually relocate south. Hardy was not only a powerful figure in his family, but he was also one of the most prominent Floridians of his day. On a voyage from Tallahassee to his estate, he was able to use his botanist skills and discovered the Florida Terea, one of the world's rarest trees. Locals regularly used the tree's wood as a building material because it was water-resistant and extremely sturdy. Some even claim that the Terea's wood was the same gopher wood that Noah used to construct his ark. Samuel Bellamy would get permission from Elizabeth's mother to begin their courting a few years following this period of migration. By 1834, Samuel Bellamy had completed medical school at the University of Pennsylvania and was engaged to Elizabeth. While history has it that Samuel and Elizabeth married in Mariana, Florida, paperwork proves that they were married three years earlier in Newington Plantation in North Carolina, and Elizabeth was actually only 15 at the time. It's also worth noting that Elizabeth did not die on her wedding night, and she and Samuel lived in North Carolina for another two years before moving south to Florida. A fever outbreak, such as malaria or yellow fever, had erupted in the Florida panhandle before they arrived. Alexander Bellamy, who had previously established residency in the state, contracted the illness and died soon after, along with his daughter. When Elizabeth had given birth to their first and only son, Samuel named him Alexander in honor of his late brother. By the time Elizabeth and Samuel's son was born, both the Bellamy brothers and their spouses had decided it was time to make their move to Florida. Edward and Anne went north of Mariana to their plantation on the Chipola River, where the Bellamy Bridge now stands. Samuel and Elizabeth would relocate to Rock Cave Plantation, north of their siblings. Settling into their new home would not go as planned, however. Samuel, Elizabeth, and little Alexander got sick with malaria shortly after they moved. And while Samuel recovered, Elizabeth and their 18-month-old son did not. While Elizabeth did not perish in a fire on her wedding night, she still suffered greatly. And at the very young age of 18, she and her son would succumb to the deadly fever only a week apart. Her obituary was published in the Tallahassee Floridian, and she was buried alongside baby Alexander at Edward and Anne's estate near the site of Bellamy Bridge. The same year, tragedy would continue to strike the Crewman Bellamy families as when Elizabeth's older brother Hardy and his family died in the steamship home disaster in North Carolina. After the death of his wife and child, Samuel did fall into alcoholic despair, just like the legend, but the fall didn't take place quite as quickly. Although he was completely heartbroken at the loss of his family, he did try to make the most of his situation. He was highly regarded in Florida society, was selected to be one of Jackson County's four delegates to the Florida Constitutional Convention of 1838 and served on the banking committee, along with being part of drafting Florida's original constitution. Working as an appraiser for the Union Bank of Florida, he was given 150 shares worth about $15,000 and the building of his massive mansion in Mariana began. All seemed well for a while and plantations were prospering in Florida. By 1838, though, when Samuel Bellamy joined the Florida Constitutional Convention, the community of St. Joseph had 12,000 citizens. Many of its important investors financed their homes and enterprises in their plantations and interior properties. Samuel, an appraiser at Union Bank, facilitated most of this borrowing. Three years after Elizabeth's death, though, everything went wrong. The economy collapsed and cotton prices fell. Yellow fever decimated St. Joseph in 1841 and the city wouldn't recover. On top of this, St. Joseph was nearly destroyed by a hurricane in 1844. Dismantled homes were transferred to Apalachicola, while those that remained were burned or left to degrade. In five years, Florida's largest metropolis vanished. The territory's economy couldn't withstand the shock. The Union Bank broke in 1843 and congressional investigators found that its managers had indulged in extravagance and borrowed money way beyond its resources. Investors lost millions. Samuel Bellamy owed the bank $27,000 by the time it closed. His fortune was gone, so he began practicing medicine and building bridges for the county to make ends meet. Lawsuits piled up against him and in order to save his land, he went to his brother Edward and they arranged a deal. Samuel would pay $1 to transfer Rock Cave to his brother. This was Samuel's sole hope of keeping it. The arrangement covered Samuel's land, animals, improvements, and slaves. Even though Edward owned all of Samuel's possessions, 
He let Samuel have full control over them, but that wouldn't last long. With the loss of his family and fortune, Samuel turned to alcohol more and more, which led to depression and addiction. If that wasn't enough, Edward started controlling Samuel's property, leaving him with nothing to live on. It all became too much to handle. 16 years after his wife and child died, he slit his own throat at an inn in Chattahoochee Landing. He was only 44 when he took his own life, but before he did, he left orders for his executor to prosecute to the maximum of the law against Edward C. Bellamy until he should be obliged to account for and pay for the last cent he possesses of mine. Eventually, most of Samuel's assets were seized to pay for his debts to the Union Bank. After his death, Edward and Ann Bellamy lived in their Jackson County plantation for a brief time before moving to Mississippi. Their house near Bellamy Bridge was destroyed in a fire, and only a cistern remains. Elizabeth's grave is currently on private property and inaccessible to the public. Samuel rests in an unmarked grave somewhere in Chattahoochee, Florida. So, why would a ghost story about a burning bride arise if this is a genuine story of Samuel and Elizabeth Bellamy? The explanation lies in the writings of a 19th century novelist noted for a southern rebuttal to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Caroline Hens wrote Marcus Warland and spent her final two years in Mariana, which caused many to assume her book was about Jackson County and those who resided there. But Caroline did not write this book while living in Mariana. She wrote it while living in Columbus, Georgia, before moving to Florida. The story was based on the people and places she witnessed in the area. The novel also describes the death of Cora, who went upstairs to rest after dancing herself to exhaustion on her wedding night. In the book, the tragic bride was not a young woman of high antebellum society, like Elizabeth. She was actually a young slave woman named Cora. Her mistress, named Mrs. Bellamy, not associated with the Florida Bellamys, was so attached to Cora that she arranged for her wedding to be in the main house and gave her a gorgeous bridal gown. After her death, Cora was buried in a small cemetery on the Bellamy Plantation. With the information provided and the way gossip spreads, it's easy to see how Jackson County folks could link Caroline Hens's novel to Elizabeth Bellamy, causing the two stories to merge and substituting the true tragedy of Elizabeth's death with the antagonizing demise of the burning bride. It is also essential to add that the character of Cora from Marcus Warland was a real woman who burned to death on the night of her wedding. Two different stories, but just as equally important. At this point, you might be asking, if the story of the burning bride isn't actually associated with Elizabeth Bellamy, is there really a ghost? In 1870, 53 years after Elizabeth's death, a single sentence appeared in a Mariana newspaper that said, The lady at Bellamy Bridge has been seen of late. Dale Cox writes in his book, The brief mention is fascinating for several reasons. First, it shows that the story was so well known by 1890 that the editor only had to mention the Lady of Bellamy Bridge for local readers to understand implicitly that he was referring to the ghost. Second, the ghost was referred to only as the Lady, not as a burning specter. Finally, the association of the ghost with the Bellamy Bridge was clear by that point. Many early accounts of Elizabeth's ghost are seen wearing a white dress and walking through the trees of the swamp near the bridge. Some have even included that her apparition has been heard crying and calling out for her husband. It wouldn't be until around the 1940s that legend started to change into seeing her with a fiery glow. Has anyone actually seen the apparition of Elizabeth in this way? That is unknown, but we do know that a large number of people have in fact witnessed something strange while spending time near the bridge. Dale Cox says that more than 50 eyewitnesses have described seeing mysterious lights at and near Bellamy Bridge. In late October 2012, in fact, a group of 25 participants in a guided tour of the new Bellamy Bridge Heritage Trail was stunned by the unexpected appearance of a faint blue light at about the midpoint of the steel frame structure of the historic bridge. A number of these witnesses were able to obtain photographs of the strange phenomenon, which was seen by the entire group and lasted seven or eight seconds before fading away. Even more unexpectedly, the mysterious light appeared to a second group of tour participants on the following night. Its appearance this time was of much shorter duration and lasted only one or two seconds. The sighting took place later in the evening and at a slightly different location near the west end of the bridge. Once again, no reasonable explanation has been offered. 
While these mass sightings were particularly unique, reports of blue lights at Bellamy Bridge are far from uncommon. One eyewitness described seeing a bright blue light appear near the bridge in the fall of 1970, while another reported observing such a phenomenon on the west bank of the Chippewa just south of the bridge during the mid-1960s. Similar stories abound. Whether they are supernatural or natural phenomena cannot be said, although it should be noted that these lights are very different in appearance from the faint and flickering glow of a foxfire that sometimes appears in the adjacent swamp. In August 2012, the Northwest Florida Water Management District worked with Jackson County to develop the Bellamy Bridge Trail along the Chippewa River. Their website states, The historic Bellamy Bridge was built in 1851. It was swept away by a flood, built again in 1874, then rebuilt in 1914. It is the second oldest steel frame bridge in Florida. It is also one of the 10 oldest bridges in the state. The Bellamy Bridge remained in use until 1963 when it was declared obsolete and replaced by a concrete bridge by which County Road 162 crosses the Chippewa River today. If you are interested in visiting the Bellamy Bridge, it is not accessible by car, but it can be reached via the Bellamy Bridge Heritage Trail on Highway 162 north of Mariana. The trail is open during daylight hours only. Hi guys, welcome to episode 13, Getting Deeper and Creepier. Unlucky 13. Oh yeah, and this was a very special episode because this was one of the first episodes we did that I went to a location, um, this is Holly, I went to the location that we covered this week, and what's even better is this week, Brittany and I are both going to talk about our different experiences at the Stanley Hotel and the Driscoll. So if you have not listened to those episodes yet, the Driscoll Hotel was our very first episode. I have always loved that hotel. I've always wanted to go. Um, I just found the whole story super interesting, so it was great that I finally got to go with my husband. And the Stanley Hotel, I believe, was our sixth episode. I can't remember. It's one of them. It's yeah. one of our episodes. It's it's the episode labeled the Stanley Hotel. So yeah. if you have not listened to that one yet either, they're both really cool. Bellamy Bridge. My I have family that live in Mariana, Florida. My husband's family specifically, his aunt and his cousins live there. But his mom was also from that area as well, but she passed away back in 2016. So when we were going to go to Mariana a few weeks ago, I decided that it would be a great time to cover Bellamy Bridge just because I had heard the stories from my time visiting down there. And like you heard in the beginning of the episode, the book that I received to do a ton of the research was gifted to me from Michael's aunt, the sister of Michael's mother. And before she passed away, she had given a bunch of her books away. So her aunt got it. So it was just really special to get to have Lisa be a part of this experience in this episode. My husband and I decided to do this trail alone to get to Bellamy Bridge. The bridge itself, um, the Heritage Trail was developed so that there was easy access to it because for a while you could not access the bridge unless you were trespassing, which a lot of people did anyway because it kind of just makes it a little bit spookier. But it was a really good thing that we decided not to bring my kids because it would have been horrible. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did. When we were accessing the trail, there was people walking back when we were walking down. And they kind of like looked disheveled and over it. And we were like, okay. Um, and my husband said something to them. They didn't really say anything back. So we were like, okay whatever. It's just going to be like a sweaty hike because it was super, super hot. And we were walking. It was great at first. Um, you could see, you know, all of all the native plants um, were around us on the trail. And as we are walking, you could see some of the swamps, some of the creek. So there was water. It was really pretty. And then as we probably got halfway there, there was water covering the trail. And so being a hiker and Brittany, you know, you're a hiker too. Sometimes that happens. It's 
like actually pretty common for there to be water that you have to cross over, especially if you're doing a pretty intense trail. So at first we were like, all right, let's see if we can kind of scoot around the water, like trying to walk on fallen trees or whatever else there was. And as we were going, we realized that there was just going to be no way we were going to be able to cross it unless we just got super wet. (laughs) And we were not aware how deep the water was. Let me just also say that my husband is not somebody that typically likes doing stuff like this. So the fact that he was the trooper that he was almost encouraging me more than I was encouraging him was phenomenal. So when he decided that he was just going to cross through the water, like I said, we had no idea how deep it was going to be. I mean, I thought maybe our ankles when he got in, he got in almost like waist deep and there was a current. So as he got in, yeah, he first like fell and then like dropped his phone and his wallet in, in the water. And luckily he got him. Um, yeah. So that was already, oh gosh. And normally, normally this area like wasn't supposed to be flooded like this. It had rained a ton. And if you know anything about this area, basically if it rains, you know, there's going to be an overpour of water. So it's a flood zone. Yeah. So, it's a flood zone. so after he went, he crossed and I'm sitting there like, oh gosh, and 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 if you know Florida and you know Florida, like you're not at the beach, you're like literally in inland Florida, like by lakes and swamps and stuff, the bugs are horrible. So, I mean, there's just like so many bugs flying around me, gnats, big flying insects that I was not aware were horseflies, no. <laughs> which I am petrified of. I'm petrified of anything that can fly and bite or sting me. I just... I don't like it. I've been stung one time and it was horrible. So I tried to avoid it at all costs. Like I'm the person that is literally running, sprinting away from anything. If we're in a group of people and there's like a yellow jacket flying around us, I mean, I'm gone. I'm out of there. Like I'm dropping my stuff and running away. It's just like an automatic reaction for me. But why Um, would you want to get stung or bit? Like... I don't, well, nobody does, but there's exactly. people that are like better at just like swatting them away. I don't know. Uh, I'm just like, nope, bye. But I'm definitely um, a flight person. I've been in several kind of fear inducing situations and I just like book it, like leave everybody that's in the room. I'm gone. Oh, me too. Yeah. Like, I don't even think about it. I just do it. And then after I do it, I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck? Like, I just left all my friends. Or one time we were in the ocean, Michael and I, <laughs> I saw a fin and I thought it was a shark. And I literally didn't even say anything to him. I just like start running back to the shore. And he's what? You were just going to leave me? I mean, it was a dolphin, of course, but... I just like see one thing and instantly it's just like fear. So after he crossed, I was like, okay, I've got to cross. Surely it's not going to get worse than this. So we took off our shoes initially when we went into the water. And like I said, currents, as I was going in, I could see several spiders. I was looking for gators. It was just truly terrifying. Um, So I crossed when we crossed like the first bit of water okay, can't get worse than that. Like we're going to keep going. So probably another 10th of a mile down, we hit more water, but this was worse. And we were also (laughs) kind of unsure if we were going the right way, just because the trail, I just don't feel the trail has been maintained well. So I just wasn't, you know, we weren't sure. Um, So we had another batch of water and this was definitely like, it was a much longer, much worse, but we were like, you know what? We've already done it once. We're just going to do it again. And, you know, probably being really stupid because there could have been water moccasins. There definitely could have been gators and luckily thing got us. But so we went through this other batch of water and by the water, there was like this dilapidated bridge. As we tried to get up it, it was super mossy. So you would slip. It was just awful. So I'm like holding on for dear life as I'm trying to go up this dilapidated bridge. And Michael's like, this better not be the Bellamy bridge. I'm going to be pissed. (laughs) 
It's definitely not the Bellamy Bridge. But at this point, we don't even know what's going on. Luckily, we get up and we get out and we're just soaking wet. Like our shoes are just squishing as we're walking. And finally, we did. We made it to the Bellamy Bridge. And I mean, it's a bridge. Uh, You know, the floorboards fell. They rotted. So you can't like walk across it. It's gated. So you can just stare at it if you wanted to trespass. I guess you could climb over the railing and try to access it. It was a bridge. And honestly... The whole time we were there, I was just upset that we were going to have to go back through what we went through. <laughs> and it started raining, too, which was just lovely. But the icing um, on the cake, we were yeah, wet. Obviously, we didn't see anything spooky. The experience was definitely spooky. It was not something I would ever want to go through again. And I uh, think that Jackson County really needs to figure out that trail because... As we were leaving, there are people wanting to access it too. And we were like, no, unless you want to get so... I mean, these women were like in nice clothes. Y'all are going to have to cross through some water. So <laughs> luckily we told them. People before yeah, us those were just like... <laughs> jerks. I know. But Maybe they thought the little, the little disheveled, disheveled bridge was Bellamy Bridge. And they were like, screw that. We're not going over there. Yeah, so unless Florida's in a drought, would not recommend that trail just because it probably truly was not safe for us to be in that water. Even, you know, when we got back, even his aunt was like, well, I'm glad no leeches got you. I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, when I was on all trails, because I was looking at the trail today, because I knew we were going to talk about your experience There's a number you can call, and it'll tell you if it is, like, washed out or not. Hmm. And also, because I sent Holly a picture of it, it says it's common to see alligators on that trail. And, like, if I saw an alligator, like, I'm not like, oh, it'll be fine. Yeah. (laughs) No. I mean. It's common. The whole time I was in the water, I was just, like, looking. Like, one's going to pop, like. We could die in this situation. I don't even know. Maybe it was just the excitement for a second that was willing us to go. But nope, I would never do it again. And like, I love the outdoors. Give me out west where it's dry. And like, you know, you're probably going to run into more wild animals. But the bugs, I just don't like bugs. I'm just not a bug person. I hate spiders. They scare me. I'm more of a... Yeah, but Holly, it's because we grew up in Miami where everything that bites you is going to kill you. Yeah. That's why we have that healthy fear. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm truly terrified. Um, Probably like a good quarter of the mile, quarter of a mile back to the car a horsefly was just like hovering near me and I was like, screw this. And I just took off. And I mean, these things are relentless. Like it did not leave me alone until like I got inside the car. Wasps or bees or whatever else will kind of leave you alone once you kind of take off. But like this thing was, I mean, it was after me and my husband had already gotten bit by several. Nope. It's not going to happen to me. Like, I don't like it. I hate it. Uh Yeah, it just kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies, whole experience. It was gross. It was gross. Didn't see anything paranormal, but I think I was way too distracted, honestly. So, everyone, if you were thinking of visiting the Bellamy Bridge, Holly, how many stars would you give it? Um, If it's not flooded, it'd be fine. Flooded? Zero. I would would not recommend it. That is a pretty simple story, and like I said, it's terrifying, which is not... Not in any paranormal way, which is worse. Almost. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's my story of Bellamy Bridge. Now we get to get to talk about the Stanley. So I think it'd be cool to tell everybody when you were there, what you saw, what were some similarities and what were some differences from our episode. So I was there, um... Maybe like June 1st or 2nd, we were in Colorado for a week, and we were staying at Rocky Mountain National Park. We were camping, so we had to drive by through Estes or Estes Park, and um, we got to see the Stanley, and I have really blurry 
ugly touristy photos of it on my phone. I was one of those people. So that was like my first glance and I didn't even see it. I was looking at like some lodge mm-hmm. on a lake that I guess is uh, Raven Dunn or whatever his name is. Okay. Um, it's named after him. And so Paul goes, oh, it's at the Stanley. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I finally saw it. And I'm like, oh, of course it is. It's big and grand and white. So um, that's why I took all the photos. Yeah. So the day we go, <clears throat> we went at night because we went for ghost tour. And so it was like 830-ish. And we got there a little bit early. So we were like, let's get a drink at the Cascades. And the hostess was like, there's no way you're getting a drink here right now. And we were like, boo. Okay. So we just walked around a little bit. So we got to see like the Stanley steamer car and it looks, it looks like literally just like it's photos. I know that sounds ridiculous because it's a photo of the place, but like, it looks just like it. You know how sometimes it's like, oh, it's grander or, oh, the photos don't do it justice. No, it was perfect. It was just like it. So we go downstairs and that's when we do the ghost tour and we had a tour guide and she started off by saying, she was like, there are some parts where you're going to feel lightheaded. She was like, sometimes it's a paranormal talking to you and other times it's because the elevation that you're at has 25% less oxygen than like everywhere else. And I'm like, oh, who knew? And then all of a sudden, a bunch of people in our group started feeling faint. And I was like, babies. Um, but it was also really hot in the room. Um, so we start walking around, and she takes us to the lodge first, which is um, like the side of the Stanley where they built it after. But it was really cool because the lodge is what the Stanley originally looked like in mm-hmm. um when it was when the Stanley was built before they put all the wood paneling on. And honestly, it is beautiful. Mm. And I don't know, the lodge was also where it was like men only. Mm-hmm. So one of the like gentlemen rooms is like has that masculine, like Western feel to it. I loved it. I was like, Paul's how we need to decorate our house. Mm. But anyways, um so something that I didn't know was that the concert music hall thing was freestanding. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I thought it was attached to the Stanley at some point this whole time. So we were like, yeah, we're going to go to the music hall. And we had to like walk out the building across the street. I was like, where are we going? Yeah. So that was cool. Um, and the upstairs of it has this like hall of fame of like posters of super cool people who have played there. So that was really neat to see. And then we got to go underneath to see where um, Lucy hangs out. Mm-hmm. Their story of Lucy was very different than our story of Lucy. Mm-hmm. But we won't go into that. Why? I don't know. Because of it was just a very weird story that I, you know. The Stanley obviously knows something different, but it wasn't anything that we found on the internet. Hmm. It was that she was like a runaway and was hanging out in the music hall with these like two guys in the winter months when they like closed the hotel down. And then she somehow got locked out of it or they locked her out of it and she died. Yeah. So it was just very, I don't know. That's not what I remember. I that, I was, was, that was one of the versions I read. I can't remember expe- exactly what we put in there, but I believe that was one of the versions I read. So I don't know. It was just, th- that's not how I remembered it. I remembered it. I guess I clung to the one where you said she was like, a, where that energy of their story gathers and they actually like become a spirit. Like oh, that's what I clung yeah. to. They're not going to say that. I know, but <laughs> anyways, so we go back into the main hotel and we get to see this other grand room. And then we go back down into the basement of the Stanley and they still use one of the original tunnels from the hotel for the staff members. And it's mm-hmm. like, literally carved out and it was so cool being in there because you also got to see the old like electrical knobs Mm 
mm-hmm. um, to connect like circuits to each other. And I'd never seen that in person. So it was really cool. And they showed us a couple of different spots um, where ghosts hang out. I took pictures. I didn't find any. And then there was one entrance. It was very small. They covered it on ghost hunters, but no one was allowed to go in there. Like an entrance to a cave. Hmm. So that was neat. And then, um, yeah, the tour, we didn't get to go up onto the stairs because another tour group was on there. Um, That's lame. Well, Paul and I just went and joined that tour group and we paid for it. Um, So then we went up onto the second floor and they have doors where you need key cards to get into the hallways. Mm -hmm. One of them was open. Nice. So Paul and I went through it. We got to see room 217. It mm-hmm. has this like creepy plaque on the outside of it where it looks like a bloody handprint like smeared down. Huh. Um, but what was really, really, really weird was like three-fourths of the rooms were under construction. Hmm. Like I guess they were renovating it. Yeah. So I got to peek in one of them. Nice. But it was like, you know, none of the wallpaper was up. The bed was in there and all the like building supplies was on the bed. And it had like, you could see where the bathroom was. And then there was like, I guess a sitting room or something. Mm-hmm. It was cool. And then they have like little artifacts of artifacts. They're like really old uh, pieces of furniture that they have just around the hallways in the hotel. And they're like decorated with stuff like at someone's desk or at someone's boudoir, like any of that kind of stuff. So it was neat that it just sits there like that. And I guess nobody really messes with it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the best part that I loved so much is you have to pay to park. <laughs> and when you pay, they give you a token. And it has the Stanley Hotel on the front of it. And on the back, it has the twins from The Shining. Mm-hmm. So you can either keep the token as like a keepsake, or you can use it for $5 off your purchase at the Cascades. We kept it, obviously. Yeah. And if you go with someone and you want a token, the bartenders will give you one for $5 cash. <laughs> I didn't have any cash. So she didn't give me another one. Aww. All equals out, though, doesn't it? It does. Uh-huh. But it was really cool. I have one photo. I have multiple photos from different angles of the staircase. Mm-hmm. And they have tiny little orbs in them. Hmm. I don't know if they're lens flares. Right. But they only happened on the staircase and at different angles. Hmm. So... In my mind, I'm like, they're lens flares. There's no way I caught a ghost. But in the back of my mind, I'm like... Maybe. Yeah. I what mean, if? I wonder if they position light so that they'll do that just like the um, Charleston ghost tour. Oh, <laughs> is yeah. that what that was? Were they positioning lights? Yes. With like the know. one like street and yeah. And yeah. You, like every picture you took, you had an orb. I'm like, okay. Yeah. No. Like <laughs> this is why it's hard for me to take orbs seriously, but I've never like really studied how to detect an orb or how to differentiate. I mean, I think... If you really wanted to know, you could send it to some experts, but true. Um, I think like unless I actually captured the face of somebody in a photo, I probably wouldn't. But to each their own. True. Oh, and I got the red rum punch. I know it was in our Instagram post, but it was really good. If you ever go, definitely order it. It was good. Yes. Was sure. Very cool. Well, I'm sure that's the point. True. Um, very cool. Yeah, I definitely want to go to the Stanley. Um, I'm somebody that just, like, loves to spend as much time in a place as possible. So I understand you guys were camping, but I would have definitely wanted to pay to stay there one day. One, one day. day. Um, but how was the Driscoll? Um, amazing. So my husband and I went to Austin for anniversary trip. I'd always been interested to go and see Austin, but the main reason we went was to go to the Driscoll. And it was probably good that we were in a place that I was so excited about because I had no idea how hot Austin was. 
I mean, it is unbearable. If you live there, God bless you. I don't know how you do it. There's like no breeze. I mean, I was like, unless we were in the school, I'm not going to lie. Like I was pretty grumpy because <laughs> heat like makes me mad. <laughs> so it can just like put me in a bad mood just in one second. So it, it was just really, really hot. And, and in general, Austin's, unless you have a car, you have to take an Uber everywhere. And I feel like because of the heat, just taking Ubers everywhere felt so much more difficult. Maybe I'm just getting old. And we um, obviously stayed at the dress school. So we are on 6th Street, which is like the bar street, like with honky tonks and like everything else. And my husband and I are just not, we're just not in that place in life anymore where we just want to go out and do that all night. That was not an appeal to us, but I could see how that would be in a, I mean, that would have been a, that would have been appealing to me 10 years ago. I would have loved that. Right. Um, so I can understand, but in general, I would say my um, experience at the Driscoll trumped my experience in Austin. So when we approached the Driscoll, it's definitely like in downtown. Um, and I think because of the pictures, I expected it to like stand alone a little bit more than it did, but it still looked exactly the same. I mean, super grand, like super beautiful compared to all the other buildings around it. It definitely stands out. Um, could definitely draw people into it. And then you enter the lobby and you get to see the huge portrait of Jesse Driscoll. And it was just interesting because the hotel itself like had a very strong aroma. Um, like it's a very old building and that's what hmm. it smelled like. But my husband was like, I wonder if this is how it actually smells or if they're like, infusing it with some kind of scent to make it feel more like historic. Uh, like like I don't Disney know. World? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Definitely has a very dis distinct smell to it. And it was smaller than I thought when we walked in. But I think that goes with a lot of photographs. That wasn't necessarily surprising. And I also thought the layout was going to be different than it was. But I mean, all in all, like, that doesn't matter, right? So when we arrived and we were checking in, they were telling us that the elevators, the main elevators stopped working because... Somebody that was staying on the fifth, a guy staying in the fifth floor in the haunted room, which I was like 525. And they were like, we can't say. Okay. Well, so it's 525. <laughs> they were like, yeah, it's a really horrible story. In the middle of the night, he ran out of his room freaking out about something. And then um, like that to get him to like go back into his room. And then um, the next day, he got trapped in the elevator, and the elevator stopped working. <laughs> I was like, this poor guy. <clears throat> he requested to check out. That was hilarious. We actually got room 425, which is right below 525. And I was like, I'll take it. You know what? We're right below it. If anything happens, we'll be able to hear, I'm sure. We got like a super tiny room, but with the height of the ceilings, it the room like a perfectly great size and it was very nice very beautiful the um bed was super comfortable mm. the air conditioning worked fabulously and that awful heat because that was definitely something we were worried about it was just really fun to get to tour the space before i get into all the little things that we saw and experienced cuz we definitely experienced some things i just have to say the staff the hotel itself was just amazing. Like if anybody's going to Austin, I would highly recommend this hotel, even though I know I might be biased, but their cafe 1886 is like a really popular brunch spot in Austin. It's delicious. Amazing. Staff is so nice. And then their bar, the Driscoll bar and grill it's just so much fun. They play live music on the weekends. The staff is very prompt. The, the food is delicious. The drinks are great. I mean, we literally ended every night there because we were like, we would rather be here because we know it's fun than like try to go do something else. But like I said, right. maybe we're just getting old. But I just... And you can walk home. Yeah. I just really wanted to like be in the space as much as I could. I just like love taking it in and just being able to sit there and be like, wow, I'm here. Like I'm actually here. This is crazy. Yeah. I'll start. We got in on Thursday. We left on Sunday. So I'll, st I'll start with Thursday. I would say that 
my husband definitely got picked on more than I did. While like I did experience and see and hear some things, my husband, (laughs) he's a bit more sensitive than me in terms of like spiritualness, I would say. Not that's something that he wants to admit, but you know. When we went up to the fifth floor for the first time, we were... Gonna, we were looking for room 525 and then definitely the portrait of the senator's daughter. And the portrait of the senator's daughter, I thought was going to be, you know, just like right in front of you when the elevators opened and it wasn't. Hmm. They have, I mean, they have beautiful paintings hanging up covering every single wall of the hotel of the, of the floor. And you can take like an art, like an art tour if you want of all the pieces of art they have. So it was definitely a hunt to find it. And if you've been to the dress school, I'm sure you can definitely relate to this. When you're in these hallways, like you're just like, you're getting lost. It's a maze. It's like, no matter how many times you've walked through these hallways, you're just like not really sure if you're going the right way. So even though I had found the picture eventually, every other time we went back to try to find it, it was like I couldn't even remember where I was. So one of the things that we stated in the episode was that when you approach a senator's daughter's portrait or when you're looking at her, you can get overwhelming feelings of dizziness, lightheadedness, and just like kind of just a feel of unease. And I don't even think my husband remembered that that was anything that happens. And um, he's also not somebody that's going to like pretend to feel something. So as we like turned one corner of the, of the hall to approach it, like you could just tell he just started to like look like he wasn't okay. And, you know, I had to be like, are you okay? And he was like, I don't know. Like I feel really dizzy and I feel lightheaded. Like there's just something in this area. And I, I said that he was scared, but... <laughs> he was freaked out. It definitely freaked him out. That area of the hall freaked him out. I just thought that was crazy. And as we left it, he started to feel better. And then we found the picture. And the picture was a random hallway, like on the corner of the hallway, just like nothing that would make you think it's special. There's nothing like next to it. There's nothing labeled. You would just have to know it's there and you'd have to know about it. So... Well, we, I definitely didn't experience anything when I saw it. I mean, I just thought it was cool to look at it. Yeah, him approaching and him going through that one hallway, it was just awful. And it was every single time. And he like did not like the hallway. I don't know what it is, but there is something in this area of the hallway. And it's also interesting because that area of the hallway is not where room 525 is. So I don't know. Maybe that's where uh, Peter Lawless roamed. Maybe. Um, on our last night, we sat in the hallway because there's tons of couches and old-fashioned furniture that you can sit on and kind of just sat there. And, oh, yeah, he said that his ears were ringing when he was in that portion, too. And when we sat there, um, my ears started ringing after we were sitting there for a while. And I, and I did start to feel lightheaded. So huh. I don't know that you can, like, make up or make your, you know, ears start ringing. But I mean, I know that you could definitely cause yourself to think that you're lightheaded. So I'm not sure, but energy was definitely off on the fifth floor, 100%. So that was something we did experience, something that was true from our episode. And I wish that I could have experienced it more, but I think I'm just too eager for these spirits. They're just going to like go for like cats. Yeah, they're going to go for someone like my husband. (laughs) Yeah, who doesn't want anything to do with them. Yeah. Um, so then the second thing we experienced was at night in our room on Friday night, um, we were going to sleep and, um, my husband felt water, like a few droplets of water dripping on him. And remember we're right below 525. And so like I could see the water droplets, I could feel them, but like he didn't see them fall down. Now, as we looked at the ceiling, like there was no indication that the ceiling was flooding and it literally happened one time as I read into it it's almost like a sensation that like like I said my husband's a little bit more sensitive than me it's a sensation that sensitive people can feel or it can happen to them and it can mean a few things um one of the things is that there is a spirit that's like there that's trying to interact with you kind of let you know hey I'm here but it's also like a negative thing like a negative spirit is there and is trying to interact with you. So I'm not really sure. I mean, 
I didn't get any that bad vibes in this hotel at all. Like there's nothing that scared me at all. Um, it was all like very positive, positive energy. So I'm not sure. Maybe they were just like, Hey, we're here. I don't know. But, um, that was weird. It was definitely weird and definitely something like we both noticed, both could see, both could feel. And yeah, it wasn't like there was an air conditioning vent over us. Like it just, it was, didn't really make sense how that would have happened. And then the last night we were there as we were going upstairs to the mezzanine level, that's where the Maximilian room is Mm. um, with Empress Carlotta's mirrors. And that's where the LBJ suite is. And it's just like has a lot of different rooms. So the Driscoll has a ton of rooms to entertain. It's not just like the Max Maximilian room. It's a bunch of other rooms too. Um, so we were able to like go into that room when it was dark and no one was in there, which was definitely creepy, but didn't experience anything in that room. But as we were approaching the mezzanine level, we both phantom piano playing. This hotel is not a hotel that has, you know, music constantly playing like some of some like nice hotels have like background music playing all the time. I mean, it was, there was no music playing and it was after the band was done for the night at the bar. And it was like, it was, it was weird because it, it sounds like exactly how phantom piano playing would sound. It's not direct. It's not direct, but you can hear it. And you're like, I'm aware that I can hear this music playing and that is really strange. And once again, this wasn't something that like we read about that I'd heard was going to happen. So it wasn't like I was even waiting for it to happen. I don't even think I was aware that there was a, a piano on that floor. So as we approached the mezzanine level, there was a piano on that floor and it was locked. So that was definitely wild. But yeah, I mean, that was pretty much it. I thought the last night we were in our room, um, like I said, the hotel is like a very strong odor that's like very specific to it. And like, it's not necessarily a bad odor, it just is distinct. And I will say that like for a few seconds, the scent changed and I did smell like a floral scent, but I could have been tired and Miss Bridges is... Like, I don't know if she was, like, really ever on the fourth floor. So, I don't know. Um, but She probably was. Yeah. So, while we did experience some things, obviously, like, we didn't see any apparitions, which would have been really cool. I would say we experienced some of the things. And I, as much as I, like, love this type of stuff, when I go into things, like, I'm initially skeptic. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to witness anything. I'm not going to see anything, you know? While some of it definitely could have been our minds, I would say I'd never experienced certain things like that before, even in, like, known haunted spaces. So I think that there's definitely something there and definitely some weird energy on the fifth floor. So if you want to stay at the dress school and you don't like weird energy, I would suggest not booking a room on the fifth floor. yeah and then they have like a newer it all looks the same but they have like they added onto the building so like you could you can get a historical room and like the historical part of the hotel which we did or you could get one of like the newly built rooms but I mean I think essentially they feel the same they look the same they do a really good job kind of merging the two together but yeah just the Driscoll itself was such an amazing experience. Highly recommend it. And if you can't stay there, I would definitely just go into their bar and grill. I mean, it's accessible from the street and get a burger, get, you know, something else to eat and get, you know, their drinks. They have amazing drinks. So that itself was amazing. I would go back to Austin solely for the Driscoll, 100%. Cool. I'll keep yeah. it on my list if I ever make it out there. Yeah, if you go out there, just try not to go out during the summer. Definitely not. And y'all might think I'm being a baby, and I probably am, but, like, it should uh, say something because we live in hot Atlanta, and people complain it's hot here, and uh, it's not even comparable to out there. Like, (laughs) not comparable. Yeah, it was definitely fun. It made me definitely want to go see more places, Um, I think, on our list next is the Lent Mansion, but I think that's a trip for you and me to take. 
just yeah. because I definitely think we need to go on a trip together and enjoy it. So um, that would be super exciting. I was going, I really wanted to take like a ghost tour of Austin, but because it was so hot, mm-hmm. we were just like, there's just no way. I mean, like I said, it's hot. It's hot even at night. Like it doesn't cool off. I did get to see a tour taking place the last time you were there and I was like kind of listening in on it and I thought it was funny you're just taking notes at your table yeah I mean she was saying pretty much everything that we had said I mean we we got a lot of our, of our information from Monica Ballard the retired Austin tour guide so it would make sense mm. that they are similar. And I think it's cute that when you check in and you like mention that you know it's haunted they give you like a little sheet that has all the ghosts and all the sightings that I've been seeing, which I thought was really cute. Were there ghosts on there that we hadn't talked about? Mm-mm. No, they were all there. No? Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So, oh, um, I think one of the things they said was that you could hear, like, party music. So maybe that was the phantom piano yeah. playing we heard. Yeah, they didn't say what type of party. It doesn't have to be a rager. Yeah. I mean, I could just seriously like talk, say good things about it all day and it'd probably just be annoying for all of you to hear me just keep raving about it. So yes, tons of fun. Super satisfied with our experience there. This banter is pretty long. It's at like 45 minutes already. So a few announcements. Our website is being worked on. It's continuing to be worked on. Um, Did I say last time? That we got the preview and it looked really awesome. I, don't I, think I so. cannot remember. I don't think so because I think you were in Colorado when I sent it to you. But Ben May is doing an amazing job. So thank you, Ben May. You're doing great. It'll be up soon. We promise it's being worked on and we'll be able to kind of fill it with more information, kind of take off a little bit more from there once it's built and ready for you guys. So, all right, well, we will catch you guys in a couple weeks. We hope you guys have a nice few weeks. Catch you on the flip side. Bye guys. Bye. This episode was produced, written and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sisterstitious. This is Sisters. It's a bucket Halloween.